This is The Guardian. Today, how did precious artefacts from the British Museum end up on eBay? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's a gorgeously sunny afternoon in central London. I've come to Bloomsbury, standing outside the British Museum. And this is a vast temple that I'm looking at, built in Victorian times, but to a classical Greek style, with more than 40 of these huge stone columns running along its frontage. And the collections it houses span two million years of human history. It tells also the history of the British Empire, where treasures from every continent were found, bought or stolen, and now they're housed here for the nation. But in the last few weeks, it's come to light that thousands of precious items have been stolen from the collection. It's extremely embarrassing. This is the most preeminent museums in the world having a security issue. I mean, it's, it's the standard for a secure museum. A curator's been sacked. The director of the museum's resigned. And an investigation's been launched to find out how these things could have been taken right from under their noses. This isn't a problem that's unique to the British Museum. It's one that all museums are contending with because it turns out that stealing artefacts is surprisingly simple and getting them back can prove much harder. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, can we trust British museums to look after our history? David Batty, you're a senior reporter for The Guardian and you also specialise in writing about visual art and cultural politics. We've only heard recently that valuable items have been going missing from the British Museum. But when did people first raise concerns about this? The story, as you know, broke about two weeks ago when it emerged that around 2,000 items that are suspected to have been stolen from the museum. But this all dates back nearly two decades. So there was an antiquities dealer called Itai Gradel who had been noticing items coming up on eBay, Greco-Roman gems, gold, jewellery, etc. And when he sort of looked at the descriptions of these items, he suspected that they belonged to a collection from the British Museum. He checked this against the museum's online catalogue and couldn't find any actual record of them. But he still had his suspicions. And eventually, he did notice that there were a couple of items from this same cellar that were in the museum's public catalogue. 
So he sort of turned detective over a number of years to try and build up a dossier of evidence, which he eventually sent to the museum. He first contacted them in 2020 through an intermediary, but then he contacted the deputy director, Jonathan Williams, in early 2021. How did the British Museum respond? So he sets all this out in a really detailed letter, raises concern that there may be thefts going on for some time at the museum. But he really gets quite brushed off by Williams, the then deputy director, who says that they've done an investigation, they've accounted for the objects that he's raised concerns about, and there's no suggestion of any wrongdoing by any member of staff, and the security measures of the museum are robust. And why did Williams respond in that way? Is it true to say that the museum had accounted for the objects? It certainly doesn't seem that they had really accounted for the objects. You know, there have been accusations that this was really a cover-up. Looking at the situation now, when we have an idea of the scale of the alleged thefts, were they just saying these things because they didn't want to draw attention to how poor the cataloguing was. There are more than 8 million items in the museum's collections, but only 4.5 million of those are actually catalogued. Gradell gave me one example that he'd heard of, that there was a collection of gems There were 942, and 935 of them were missing. And he'd heard that these gems were not individually described. So the records only described this particular collection as a whole. Oh, my goodness. Because of the way these things have been described and catalogued, it may be really difficult to prove that they belong to the museum. Why is the public only just hearing about these missing gemstones now? The reason why this has taken so long to come out is because the museum really just continued to brush off Gradell's concerns. Near the end of last year, I think it was in October of 2022, Gradell writes again to the museum. He writes to Sir Paul Ruddock, who's one of the museum trustees, and Hartwig Fisher, the then director, is contacted who again assures Ruddock that these items are in the museum collection. So eventually it comes out because Gradell obviously has spoken to the media and it becomes a story. It's embarrassing for the bosses of this museum. Their job is to preserve antiquities. And now they've had to admit that not only have possibly thousands of them gone missing, but that they didn't really react when an expert was making repeated attempts to alert them to that. George Osborne, who's the head of trustees at the British Museum and was once, of course, the Chancellor, went on Radio 4 to apologise about it. I mean, on behalf of the British Museum, I want to apologise for what has happened. Uh, We believe we've been the victim of thefts over a long period of time, and frankly, more could have been done to prevent them. Does it seem like this was an inside job? We know that a member of staff has been sacked and there's an ongoing police investigation. So Gradell had turned detective 
And as part of, you know, his investigation, the seller had identified themselves as Paul Higgins. But he noticed on the PayPal receipt that the name was actually Peter Higgs and that this was the same name as a curator at the British Museum. Peter Higgs was clearly well-respected at the museum. He was the head of department for Greece and Rome. And since he's been connected to these thefts, he's lost that job. He's not made any public statements himself yet, but his son has given a statement to The Telegraph on his behalf. He said that his father had not done anything wrong. He's not happy about it at all, he said. He's lost his job and his reputation, and I don't think it was fair. And then Hardwick Fisher has also resigned. Yes. Have there been any other repercussions? So Hardwick Fisher has resigned with immediate effect. Uh, and Mark Jones, who's a former director of the Victorian Albert Museum, has been hired as interim director. And Jonathan Williams, the deputy, who was the one who directly dealt with the complaint or the whistleblowing complaint by Gradell has also taken a step back from his normal duties. The British Museum also said it's introduced emergency security measures, although, again, it hasn't specified what those are. Arthur Brand, you're an art crime investigator and you've been dubbed, and I'd love to hear what you think about this title, you've been dubbed the Indiana Jones of the art world. Tell us about the kind of work that you do. So I'm far from being an Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones is a good-looking guy. I'm just moderate. But <laughs> having said that, um, the stories I get involved in sometimes have this Indiana Jones-like atmosphere, you know. Last year, I recovered a piece, it, uh, The Blood of Jesus, it is called. It was stolen in France. It's a relic from the Catholic Church, one of the most important relics, and it's said to contain the blood draws of Jesus. But apart from the stories, there's nothing Indiana Jones about me. So how did you get into it? Well, I, I did some university studies, but I failed. And um, I thought, what I'm going to do? And at the time, I was collecting ancient coins, Roman coins. And then one day, I found out that there are forgeries out there. And it intrigued me because the few articles I found mentioned that one third of all the art on the market, including antiquities, is fake. And I thought, how can it be that nobody talks about it? And of course, it's, it's obvious because nobody wants to talk about it. And it intrigued me, you know, because if you start to mess with antiquities or with art, you are messing with our collective memory. The first piece that I was part of it with the recovery was the Gospel of Judas. That was in 2005, 2006. That was the time of Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code. But at that time, we were really investigating a gospel that really was forbidden 2,000 years ago by the church. The church thought that 2,000 years ago they had destroyed all copies, but somewhere in a given Egypt, one remains. It was found by Lutus, and they tried to sell it on the black market. And we discovered it at the time, and we published about it. So it came out in the open. And that was the first case in my career. Yeah, you're definitely justifying the argument there that you are Indiana Jones. No, I'm not. You've worked on 
cases that involve some very notable artists, haven't you? Can you just give us a flavour? My biggest case uh, is Hitler's horses. Those were Hitler's favourite statues. They adorned the Reichschancellery, the headquarters of the Nazis. And everybody thought them to be disappeared at the end of the war, you know, destroyed. But together with the German police, I managed to find out that they still did exist. They were in the hands of old Nazis. And we managed to recover them. I think that's my biggest case. But on the other hand, I've recovered a Picasso worth 70 million. I hang it on my wall for a night. No. How did that feel? Well, I told the police I will recover it on Wednesday, but I already recovered it on Tuesday. It's not that they pay you very well, you know, for these things that I do. So you have to get your satisfaction in other means. And this was one of them. And it, it was a very special Picasso because Picasso had never sold it. It was there when he died in his room. So, you know, you have these headline cases, these incredible cases, and I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like to sort of sleep in the aura of a 70 million pound painting. But are those typical? You know, if something that huge goes missing, people are going to notice it. Is it more common that thieves would take items that are less conspicuous? Absolutely. If you have a box with, for example, 10 golden Roman rings that have not been catalogued, let's say in the storage of a museum, or you can instead steal, for example, the Rosetta Stone. Well, it's obvious you go for the smaller things because they probably won't miss it. 99% of these museums, the objects they have are in storage. Only 1% is on display. That means that 99% of all the objects are never seen by nobody except for the people who have access to the storage rooms. And it's difficult to guard, you know. I've been in these storage rooms and I've never stolen anything in my life. Never, not even a suite. But I was there and I was between all these boxes and I saw all the gold, all the silver. It, it was tempting, I have to say, you know. It's difficult to guard and it's easy to put something in your pocket. If you want to do something wrong, that's the place to be. What are some of the most common ways then that thieves try to hide or pass on what they've taken? Well, in most cases, people steal gold, silver, jewelry, etc. And those are the easy objects because you can melt down gold, you can melt down silver, and you can pick out the diamonds and sell them separately. You have to deal with people who are involved in this world. And some of those people are going to be dangerous people. What do they tend to be like? How does it feel to be interacting with them? Well, the thief who steals something is normally not the person who keeps the stolen artwork. He passes it on. And in the end, after a couple of years, it might end up in the hands of mafia bosses, terrorists, drug lords. They know that one day the police might catch up with them. And they know that when they have Leonardo da Vinci or a few Rembrandts, they might get a deal. One of the best examples are the two Van Goghs that were stolen in the Netherlands in 2002 by Octave Duram, one of the most famous art thieves in the Netherlands, maybe worldwide. He has retired since a couple of years and he's now helping me to try to track down stolen art. Mm. But he sold them to Rafael Imperiale. Rafael Imperiale was the number two mafia boss in the world. He was on the run. And he indeed managed to make a deal with the two stolen Van Goghs. So uh, that's the, the people I have to deal with. Tell me then about 
what kind of security measures do museums have in place to try and prevent things being stolen? Well, people have been criticizing the British Museum and that's partly correct. They haven't reacted immediately. A couple of years ago, they were informed that something was wrong and it seemed that they were trying to sweep it under the carpet. But on the other hand, you must understand, if you have hundreds of thousands of objects in your storage rooms, it might take a day to catalog one object. Can you imagine if you have to catalog hundreds of thousands of these objects? One per day, you have to hire hundreds of people. And then it still takes decades. So you're saying that it's understandable that the British Museum wouldn't have catalogued everything. But presumably, you know, they have security measures in place. It's not all just sitting there for people to rummage through and take. Imagine that they do a full body search each night that everybody leaves the museum. You know, who would want to work in a museum? It's very hard to treat your employees as criminals and especially senior curators or directors, but maybe they should because we have had cases in Turkey. A director of a museum was sacked because he replaced a big part of the collection with forgeries and he sold the authentic pieces on the black market. So I think you cannot solve these thefts. People who work for you for 30 years, it's very hard to prevent them from stealing if they want. So when things do go missing, and you know the British Museum will be thinking about this actively now, how can they go about recovering objects that have gone? Yeah, that's the other problem. If you don't have pictures of the objects that have been stolen, if you don't have a description of them, it's going to be quite a task to get these pieces back. It's not only the British Museum. I've had a similar case. In 2002, Oscar Wilde's ring was stolen, a golden ring from Oxford. The thief said it had been melted down, so the police stopped the investigation. Three years ago, I recovered that ring. So I called Oxford and I said, I have found Oscar Wilde's ring. And they said, oh my God, that's great. Send us a picture. So I sent it over to them. And they said, that's not the ring. This is a fake one. I said, how do you know? And they said, well, the inscription on the ring a gift of love to the one who wishes love, is on your ring on the outside. It should be on the inside. And I said, okay, then send me the picture of the authentic ring so I can compare them. I said, we don't have it. I said, what do you mean you don't have a picture of that ring? And he said, we never made a picture of that ring. And I said, but how do you know this is not the real ring? And he said, well, a curator remembers that this line was on the inside. And then a couple of weeks later, I discovered a letter of Oscar Wilde in the archives, and it said, my dear friends, if you want to have this line on the ring, it should be on the outside because there is no room for it on the inside. And then I could prove that the ring was indeed Oscar Wilde's ring. You see, um, if something gets stolen and you want to bring it back, they might say it's a forgery because we don't have a picture. So my fear is that most of these items will never be returned. Coming up, do these thefts make it more likely that the museum will repatriate some of its collection? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Guys, pop culture is returning on Thursday, the 14th of September. You will also have the chance to attend the show's very first live event. I will be at the London Podcast Show on Sunday, the 17th of September. And joining me is a matchmaking expert, you know, Married at First Sight's very own Paul C. Brunson. Purchase your tickets to be in the room or on the live stream at kingsplace.co.uk forward slash pop culture. Bye. David, Arthur's given me a sense of how involved it is for museums to catalogue their collections and how, in terms of keeping the storage rooms secure, they do need to be able to trust their employees. Is it feasible for the British Museum, which has such a huge collection, to catalogue everything and really keep it safe? The museum collection is vast. You know, it's more than 8 million items. The British Museum has never put an exact figure on it, which in a lot of ways is is rather telling. If you have a bad actor who's working in the museum and has access, you can see how it could be easy to cover your tracks if you decided that you were going to steal some of them. And then there's the question of what is the point of even having items in storage? Couldn't they loan more items out to regional museums? I think the reason that regional museums can't show more of this collection is because, you know, in some ways they're in the same position. They've got big collections, much of which is also in storage. 
It's also down to resources and capacity. Many of those museums have, over the past sort of 10, 15 years, partly due to austerity, they would say largely due to austerity, sacked or got rid of their specialist curators who have a deep knowledge of these collections. One of the ironies of this situation is that George Osborne, who's the chair of the trustees, was one of the architects of austerity, and a lot of people in the museum sector blame him for the poor state that many museums' finances are in today. What chance is there that some or all of these stolen items can be recovered? The British Museum has announced that they've recovered some of them, although, again, they haven't gone into any details. You know, if they get a confession and they get all the details of where everything is or who everything has been passed on to or sold to, then maybe they can do it. But, you know, if they don't get a confession and the museum can't prove that these objects actually came from the collection, I'm not entirely sure what will happen because it's going to have the museum be in the same position as some of the countries who are saying, won't you give us back our objects? A lot of people feel that the British Museum has a very dubious claim to many of the artefacts it has in its collection. You know, Many of these incredible items, like the Benin bronzes, were looted from other countries in the former British Empire. I mean, Geoffrey Robertson QC called the trustees of the British Museum the world's largest receivers of stolen property. So should these things even be in this museum? I mean, it's a very good question. And I think many of us believe that the British Museum and other museums across the former European colonial powers should be returning more looted objects to their countries of origin. There is a law which is about 60 years old, the Museums Act, which prevents the British Museum from permanently removing objects from its collection. So there are a growing number of experts and MPs who are saying that this law needs to be amended. And the situation that we're in now is really that the museum is hiding behind this law as a reason to not repatriate these objects back to their countries of origin. What this scandal has really done is, I think as one MP told me, it sort of made the British Museum's claim to be the sort of safe custodian of the world's heritage ridiculous. The British Museum has made a big point of saying, well, we can't return some of these objects because we can't guarantee that they will be kept safely, they'll be managed correctly, that there's the expertise to look after them. And yet they've been found out to really not be safe custodians at all. I'd imagine that museum professionals in the countries that have been campaigning for items to be returned to them from the British Museum, for example, those in Greece who've been asking repeatedly for the Parthenon marbles to be returned, at least on a loan basis, are feeling a certain schadenfreude about these thefts, have any of them made public statements? Yes, they have. We have had statements from Greece, I think also Chinese state media, and the Nigerian government, I think, has also repeated calls for the Benin bronzes to be returned. It's really almost like you name a country where they've got a grievance with the British Museum. 
and they've been speaking out in the wake of this scandal. David, historically, the British Museum has been one of the most trusted and admired and enjoyed institutions in the country. And, you know, as we've discussed, its reputation has has been questioned in recent years. But where does this scandal leave them? You know, there are all these questions now facing the museum about how it operates, how it moves forward. You know, the scale of documenting all of these items is so immense that they are going to have to come up with something other than just saying, well, we're going to document everything. Because even if they put all the resources into doing that, it would take them years to complete it. These issues of uncatalogued items are not unique to the British Museum. So I think there will be quite a number of institutions who will be feeling rather nervous that they might be the next ones to fall victim to something like this. David, thank you very much. Thank you. That was David Batty, a senior reporter for The Guardian. Thanks to him and to Arthur Brand. Now, I want to let you know that we've got a juicy Guardian Live event coming up. If you're anything like me and you've spent way too much of your life watching Married at First Sight, Paul C. Brunson, one of the matchmaking experts from the show, is going to be joining Shantae Joseph, who hosts The Guardian's pop culture podcast, for a chat as part of London Podcast Festival later this month. They're going to be talking about the dynamics of TV dating shows and there may be some relationship tips in there for you as well if you're looking for those. It's happening on Sunday the 17th of September at 2pm. You can go along live or you can stream it from wherever you are. Just go to kingsplace.co.uk forward slash pop culture for your tickets. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles and sound designed by Adam Bransbury. The executive producers were Huma Khalili and Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 